This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Trevor, and I am here just as Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? <laughs> doing well. Just as Paul. I like that one. <laughs> We're equals. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm doing good. Off to a good start this morning and uh, excited for today's episode. This is going to be a fun one. I agree. And I think I'll just start it out really fast by saying I was I was pretty thrilled. You you pointed uh, me to a new iTunes review. It's not actually new. It came to us December twenty second, but I don't I don't look there as often as I should. And it's from someone named Pacific Pacificix, <laughs> and it says. I've been a huge fan of the Mooks and the Gripes book blog for a number of years, thank you, and have also been enjoying this podcast by hosts Trevor and Paul this year. It's a great place to learn about a variety of titles, and I appreciate and look forward to their thoughtful reviews, readings, and insights. I always make sure to have a pen and paper handy, or a place to take notes, since I don't think I've heard a single episode where I didn't get one, but usual, usually several, amazing recommendations. My year in reading benefited so much from this podcast, and I can't wait to hear what topics and titles they cover in the future. Paul, I give you a lot of that credit for sure. Um, I have been in in the same position where I get a lot of uh, recommendations from you, and it's been a great thing for me, this podcast. So thank you, Pacific Kicks, and thank you, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Those kind of messages are just so exciting and fun. And, and it sounds exactly like what I would hope someone would get from this podcast. And and yeah, same thing. I, I just appreciate Trevor, everything that you've put in my path and all the readers today, we're going to have a bunch more where people are going to be chipping in with some, some book titles. It's one of my favorite things about this is just that ever growing TBR pile. Yeah. Did, so that was a good recommendation to have a notepad and pen paper or something like that. Yeah. Um, I know people have told me we need to do show notes and we do, but I haven't figured out a good way to do that without making this feel like a bit of a chore on the back end. And so I'll figure something out someday. But for right now, I'm going to just hope that you can sit down just like you would back in the 1940s, you know, <laughs> kick it up by, by a notepad and uh, get a drink yep. <laughs> by your radio. The Books and, and Grabs radio show. <laughs> and here comes some book recommendations. And I kind of feel like show notes should be my penance because I feel like I'm the one that usually says like, you know, I'm supposed to have one book and I dump like seven extra ones in there. So maybe that should be my punishment. (laughs) Yeah, I tried for a few episodes, but Paul's absolutely made it impossible. (laughs) (laughs) But an episode like this one, today we are going to be talking about comfort reads. Thanks to a recommendation from Patreon Padma. Padma, thanks so much. I read her note a few weeks ago on the show And yeah, it's time for some comfort reads. And I've been having a lot of fun thinking about this. But we also asked uh, listeners to give us some of their recommended comfort reads. If you thought our NYRB Classics episode had a lot of good recommendations and a lot of quantity recommendations, I actually think we beat it this time. I do too. So Yeah, we appreciate everybody weighing in. It was fun just, you know, make... I was trying to compile the list and they just kept pouring in, which was great, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that I think Padma actually hit on something here. I think that says a lot about this particular topic too. I think it's something that a lot of people feel strongly about, which is exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. But let's start with some recommendations before we get to all those recommendations. Yeah, uh, what are you reading right now, Paul? 
So I am reading three books that I'll just touch on briefly. So I have been listening to Colm Tobin's The Magician, um, which I've really been enjoying. I listened to his other, The Master, you know, Mm -hmm. that was about Henry James when that came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And that was an audio experience there. And I really, really love that. And that might have actually been one of the first ones that I, you know, sampled from him. And so when this one came out, The Magician, and specifically because it's Thomas Mann that he's covering, mm-hmm. um, I was very excited. So yeah, I've been listening to that and, and really enjoying it so far. I'm maybe about a third of the way through that. Um, then last night, I was very excited and, and happy to go <laughs> to a book signing. First one I've been to, you know, in a couple of years, and it was John Darneal, who we've talked about. He was signing for his new book, Devil House. Oh, man, that was just so great to be back, you know, in a in a a book event, a live book event like that. I've been to so many virtual ones and it's just not quite the same. He was even saying like, you know, just how different it feels to see all the faces out there. And everybody seemed a little almost emotional, not everybody, but a lot of people were just very emotional mm-hmm. to be back together and talking about literature. Um, so yeah, I got a couple of uh, books signed from him and just had a great night, you know, listening to him talk about his book. I'm going to dive into that one starting today, actually. As promised, I said as soon as a right. You're supposed to drop book. everything else. Right? I know. I didn't <laughs> literally drop it because there's one more that I'm going to touch on here that it's just it's too good to drop completely. So I'm going to maybe pair them. Um, and the the one that I've been reading and will continue to read is "The Art of Flight" by Sergio Pital, translated by George Henson. And this one came out in 2015 from Deep Vellum. And man, this is just an absolutely fascinating book. Um, Patal is a really highly esteemed Mexican writer, and I've had these books on my shelf for a few years now um, and finally decided to pull them down recently. You know, this guy had just such an incredible life. He was an author, translator, a scholar, a diplomat. You know, he just did all kinds of things. And so this book kind of takes the form of a series of essays about some of the different events and experiences that he had in his life. Um, it's, a, it's a blend of a memoir and I guess maybe a travel log a little bit. Um, Someone on Twitter described it to me this way, and I really like this. The art of flight is like sitting beside your favorite aunt or uncle, telling stories of a life lived through literature and travels. So I just think that's a great description. Um, I knew I'd love it early on because I came across this passage about Thomas Mann. Uh, It says, I tried several times since adolescence to read The Magic Mountain. It was a book that we had at home and was widely recommended. I was never able to make it beyond page 50. But during a long trip I took on a Yugoslavian freighter a few months ago, I was finally able to read it from start to finish. When I got to the last word, I closed the book, and the next day I started to reread it, this time closely, which was the happiest reading I can remember. So there's a lot of things I like about that, the rereading, but also I kind of wish I'd read it on a Yugoslavian freighter. That (laughs) (laughs) kind of captures this book. It's just really the, the travel the, the writing, the reading, you know, he, he name drops a lot, which is some people might find annoying. I found it intriguing, a lot of really interesting, particularly um, authors who've written in Spanish, but other people too. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, you know, I won't go on and on about it, but it's really good. It's divided into four sections, memory, writings, readings, and ending. And I'm making my way through the writing section right now and really enjoying it. So it's one of those, speaking of adding a lot of books to your pile or authors to your pile, I've definitely been jotting down lots of names, many of them which I've heard before and, and many which I've never heard, which is always exciting. So yeah, it came very highly recommended and I can see why I would you know, suggest anybody who hasn't heard of it picks it up and gives it a try. Very nice. I have those books. When they came out, I, I, I got them 
but mm-hmm. because the first one came and I was like, oh, I'll just wait till I can read all of them. And then they've all shown up and I haven't gone back and done that yet. So that's a good reminder because uh, when they came, I remember reading up on them and thinking, oh, this sounds fascinating. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, how about you? What have you been reading? I'm still reading the books of Jacob <laughs> by Olga Tokarczyk. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to take a while. I am, I am, of course, farther than last time when I said I was reading it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty dense, and it, it is something I can sit down and read and and be surprised at how much I get done, and then also be surprised at how little a percentage of the book that is. <laughs> right, right. But I am still enjoying it. But I, you know, it's it's certainly getting a, a lot more people say. I didn't like that at all. And I'm like, I can, I can totally understand why that would be a response from even really discerning, you know, readers that I normally would, would agree with. Um, I am enjoying it a lot. Uh, and maybe I'll get into it more when I'm finally, finally through it. But, but yeah, that's taking up a lot of my time. However, in preparation for our Jane Austen episode coming up oh. here in a few months, I am rereading Sense and Sensibility but I'm reading it out loud to my wife. And that has been just a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> oh, cool. I love yeah. that. We, yeah. we started it about a year ago and kind of got bogged down with other things. And, and this was a good chance to get back to it. And we've been more dedicated and it, it is fun. It's I get a little tongue tied and twisted around, you know, because some of those sentences are so long and mm. you kind of feel like you have to read them like you're super clever and witty yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It puts a little pressure on you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's a lot of fun. That is fun. I When we first were married, my wife and I, I used to read to her a fair amount. Like I read a lot of the Harry Potter books to her when they first came out. That was how we both experienced them for the first time. Hmm. And then actually one of my books that I'm going to talk about today in the Comfort Reads episode, I've read passages to her over the years, sometimes out loud as well. That's a really fun way to kind of share a book together, you know, with kids and everything. It's not always as easy as it used to be. Although we do, I think both of us read to our kids, which maybe somewhat replaces that with the spouse. But um, yeah, that's really cool. I like that. On that, I am reading book three of the Lockwood and Co. I think I told you before I've been kind of going through Mm. those with my kids Mm -hmm. and that's uh, called the hollow boy and really loving it. Uh, do, Do you have something you're reading to your kids right now? Yeah. Well, our older one, I think it was kind of sad, but maybe expected you know he's almost 17 and we actually have been reading to him almost like we trade off every night and read to both of them but recently he's like do you mind if we just sit and read on the couch next to each other our own books and it was (laughs) like you know it's probably not overdue because I I don't think there's any time limit on it but I've been expecting that so that was a recent thing that was kind of expected but a little sad but we've been reading with our younger one um the um the uh his dark materials Hmm. trilogy by Philip Pullman and so we are on book two right now, book two, which is the subtle knife. Um, and I don't know if you like those books. I, I love those books. They're just so the, the world building in those books is to me just stunning. It, it's so cool. All the, the witches and angels and, you know, the, the demons that are like the familiars of the people and everything, uh, you know, th- those, that's another series that just has such great imagination. So we've been making I- our way through those. So me and, and his dark materials, I was in London in 2004 when the stage production came out and it looked so cool that I bought the first book and I actually had a hard time getting into it. I think I read maybe 50 pages. Mm-hmm. I was studying and doing all kinds of other things. So it wasn't, I, you know, there was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then when the movie came out, I thought, oh, this will give me a sense to to get into it. And holy, that movie just stunk. Uh, I know. I thought it was was so boring. Um, And so I never got back to it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't blame you. That that movie probably turned a lot of people off from the books, unfortunately. Um, Well, yeah, I don't know. I read them when they first came out and my wife did too and and really loved them. So, you know, I don't know for sure. I I bet you if you revisit them one of these days, if you were in the right headspace. I would like to. (laughs) Yeah. I think just, so. Yeah, they they have a lot in common with other fantasy books, but they he does his own thing um, that makes it really special. I will say that I've tried to read. I guess they're the prequels that have come out since then, and I read the first one and, and eh, it wasn't thrilled. <laughs> I think at least one more has come out since then, and I haven't even really been inclined to pick it up. So I, it might be one of those where I just kind of preserve those first three and enjoy them mm-hmm. for what they are, and don't worry about. Sometimes I think in our <laughs> culture at least in my opinion all the the backstories the prequels the sequels the each little (laughs) character needs a whole movie or a whole book about them like there are times where i kind of enjoy just having this little you know finished yeah for project yeah so anyway well we are really good at tangents upon tangents upon tangents but let's get back to comfort reads um and i thought it may be a good place to start is what is a comfort read for you? But maybe even before then, when, why? Now, before mm-hmm. we talk about what a comfort read is, let's try to come at it by discussing when is it that you want a comfort read? Is yeah. it when you have a time of personal crisis or you're stressed out? In which case, you know, does it preclude books that are, you know, in quotes, depressing? And that doesn't seem right to me necessarily, because for, for me personally, I think this is a very personal thing, uh, but I'm very comforted by like William Trevor's stories or Jim Willahiri's. And I think it's because they show a, a degree of lack or a degree of respect and kindness uh, mm-hmm. toward their most fallible characters. And, you know, is it something you want a palate cleanser? Is it needed for escape, a need for that kindness or peace? Uh, what, what do you think, Paul? When do you, when do you think a comfort read is the right thing for you? Yeah, I was thinking about this because I don't know that I, I think some people, maybe, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but partially from all the comments we've gotten, I think some people think about it and and consciously seek out a comfort read sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm feeling blue or this happened and I'm going to go find a book to make me feel better. I don't think I ever consciously do that, or at least I can't remember too many times with the caveat that I did do that a couple times during kind of the depths of the isolation of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I absolutely did seek out some books that I thought I just want to feel better. So well, as there, far as there what... was a lot of talk and posts and news articles yeah. about comfort reads in March and April of 2020 in particular. So yeah, exactly. And that was definitely one time. I, the only time I can think of that I actually consciously was like looking on my shelf for something to, to make me feel better. Um, yeah. I was thinking about this. I mean, for me, it can be a lot of things. And like you just said, I don't think it necessarily has to be a cheerful book or anything like that because there are books that some people might consider to be bleak or depressing, but if you read them at the right time, they can be very comforting. Sometimes it's just that shared mm-hmm. humanity, knowing you're not the only one going through a dark time or, or you know, there's different reasons why that might resonate. Um, I think a lot of what draws some people to certain books is nostalgia, you know, as well. Sometimes when you're in a rough part of your life or you're feeling blue, it, it makes sense that you would go back to some good memories from the past, you know, some children's mm-hmm. books you know like i was thinking about that like the hobbit for me would definitely be one of those or charlie and the chocolate factory or charlotte's web you know some of those books that you read during a time in your life or hopefully you were you know a happy childhood kind of a thing 
Um, so that's definitely something I thought about a lot too. Um, do you, what about escapism? Does that weigh into it for you at all? I think so. I think that there's a part of that and I tried to figure this out. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to lay out some thoughts here, not super well organized. What I'm trying to describe when I talk about a comfort read for me, it, it isn't just a favorite book. There are plenty of those, though, of course that might fit, but the best I could figure out is like, let's say it's cold outside. You've been working, maybe you've been shoveling snow or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And you're shivering and it's in your bones. It's just, and it's a little bit miserable. You go inside, you put on a warm blanket. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought I'd go for, for a comfort read. What books are like that? What books are my warm blanket when I'm feeling cold? Mm-hmm. And this does entail things like rereading or even some escapism. And I thought, man, in a way, 2021, I think I had that spirit guiding my reading choices a lot of the year. Uh, My end of the year favorite book lists that we just recorded a few months ago, I think were very optimistic books. Yeah. Uh, Again, not saying that's the only way you can get comfort, but that's the Enchanted April was absolutely a warm blanket for me. And, and one that not only warmed me up, but then reinvigorated me like, you know, a burst of spring, you know, warmth. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a reason uh, that I was so um, attracted to the warden, for example, because it's just such a kind hearted, comforting book and probably a bit of why I read so much Brandon Sanderson speaking Mm -hmm. of escapism. It was just fun and very nice in the evenings to get away from it all into one of those worlds and still feel that warmth, you know, maybe a bit of the sense of things that, that I loved as a, as a child, that kind of comfort in a time when not everything was was super comforting out there Mm -hmm. and have to grapple with that. You can't, you know, escape from it all that, right. that doesn't work for me. But, um, but I think that there is a bit of that escapism and, you know, the enchanted April is a kind of an escapism book in a way. It's about a literal escape. <laughs> these, some mm-hmm. of these women uh, do in their lives to get away from, from their, their homes in England and their marriages even for a bit, but it reinvigorates in every single way, these, these identities and these lives. So yeah, I would, Again, I'm laying out quite a bit. I don't know how organized or if that made much sense, but I thought, well, I want a warm blanket book. That's how I will approach it this time. Yeah, um, and and kind of go from there. I like that a lot. And and you mentioned the warden. I thought about that one too. Or and you also mentioned Jane Austen. And I mm-hmm. I, I thought about you know we're going to be doing an episode, so I didn't want to list her, but she very yeah. easily could have been one of my mine too. I have her on an honorable mention for the mm-hmm. same reason. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I was trying to think like what it is about those types of books, for example, that that might work. And I think one of the things, like you said, there's often a kindness that flows through those, even when some of the characters might not be all that yeah. kind there. You know, it's not like Austin doesn't have plenty of acidic characters or nasty characters or, you know, but there's usually a kind of a, a general sense of kindness that flow her, through her books. And also I was thinking about it, like, I don't mean low stakes in a, in a, like a no, I, patronizing I way. Yeah. But you know, you know that it's not going to mostly be life and death. It's going to be people's having relationships and there's these social things that are going on that are, you know, very important. That makes up a lot of all of our lives, but with her, it's respectful. You know, 
mm-hmm. of of those stressful low stakes. There's a I can't remember if it's Lark Rice to Candleford or Cranford or one of those though. My wife and I talk about this sometimes. Sometimes you might watch an episode of one of these comfort you know television mm-hmm. shows, and the biggest thing is you know someone has lost the butter. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, but it's about the stress and the coming together and this the way they make it through some of these little moments too that can be so nice to not have it be, you know, uh some super dramatic soap opera-ish mm-hmm. um thing going on. It's very regular and normal and still fun. So anyway, sorry, I interrupted oh. you to throw that in there. No, you're exactly right. And I was thinking about it with Austin in particular, like one of the things I think is often you know by the end, to some degree or another, things are gonna wrap up in a in a relatively good way there will be a bow tied and that isn't necessarily something that i seek in most of my reading but i was thinking like in certain times when you need a comfort read i think that can be a factor in it just knowing mm-hmm. at the end that there's going to be some type of resolution but okay can i propose something that's a little bit controversial about uh, comfort reads here well i'm very interested now. yeah so what do you <laughs> think what do you think about the idea of um Comfort reads as books you have not yet read. Is that possible or is that a completely different definition? And no, what I'm I, thinking I, of is like, for me, there's these books on the shelf that I, I derive so much comfort by knowing they're sitting there and waiting for me. Um, yeah. You know, I'll look up on my shelf when I'm feeling stressed during a work day or when I'm feeling a little blue and I'll see uh, there's still these unread Dickens that I have. Or you mentioned Tim Robinson's books, you know, those, those books about the islands. Like just knowing that those are out there waiting for me someday, I get a tremendous amount of comfort from that. And so I just wanted to throw that out there and see see what you think. Yeah, I'm picturing you sitting in an office mm-hmm. on an awful day. You know, the 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 fluorescent lighting is is bad. You you look pale, <laughs> and you pull out a picture of an island because you've got tickets to that island mm-hmm. in eight months <laughs> exactly you know it gives you some comfort to know that that's on the horizon and one of my fa- we've talked about this maybe all the way back at our episode one bucket list books that video and i can't remember who it was of that personal library where he yep. says you know oh here's thomas mann's Buttonbrooks. i haven't read this one yet good <laughs> you know that means i have something to look forward to yeah i, I think that's an awesome way to look at this I thought you were maybe going to go into to maybe genres, you know, that mm. I just know I like this stuff. So the prospect of reading another one in this series or by Dickens means something to me. But I like where you've taken that. There's just comfort of, of having the promise mm-hmm. of some of these books. And I think sometimes that, in a weird way, prevents me from reading some of them. Yeah. Um, because you don't want to spend it yet. You know, you don't want it to be over. That promise is appealing and sometimes healthful. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you 100%. That's, I hadn't thought about that, but I like that a lot. Yeah. No, you're right, too, that sometimes part of the reason you're putting them off is because you don't want to ruin, like, you have this perfect idea of what it will mean to you. And yeah. sometimes, I mean, that can backfire because you set the stakes a little, or not the stakes, but you, you set the expectations a little too high. But, yeah, I yeah. really do think that that makes up a big part of my my comfort reading. And yeah. So the only other thing I was going to mention is just too. sometimes I don't know that it's necessarily any particular book, but for me, sometimes like we've talked about just reading as a meditation or reading as a part of your day that you do. Like if, if you read a half an hour before bed, sometimes just comfort reading is 
reading, mm-hmm. you know, like just the, the idea that you will be reading whatever book it is sometimes provides a huge amount of comfort for me as well. So I just wanted to throw out a couple yeah. of those little, little wrinkles. No, that that's great. Yeah. And I think you've taken it to some really interesting areas. I, I, I will return to more traditional when we give it, get into our list here in a few yeah. minutes, but maybe before we do that again, we, we have a lot of uh, listener listener comments. Do you mind, uh, kicking us off there and then we'll we'll get to ours here in a few, in a in a minute or two but let's let's get through these we'll try and be fast so again pen and paper ready yeah get ready all right here we go the first one came from herb randall anything pg woodhouse especially the jeeves short stories pure escapism the familiarity of running gags to repay repeated readings and some truly laugh out loud moments for those days when everything is awful the great sermon handicap and the purity of the turf are favorites that's a popular, he comes up a few mm-hmm. times. He'll come Jerry, up on my own list. I oh, think. nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, Jerry Faust says JL Carr's A Month in the Country is a great comfort read. It's a novel without conflict, yet manages to be one of the most perfect books I've ever read. Now, hold on a second before we go on to the next one. It was either January or February of, I don't know, 2008, 2009, 2010. I can't remember. And I was not. Like the the cold weather, I was in New Jersey. It was just an, a bad winter, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing that book on my shelf, that promise, and I did pull it down and said, "I need to get away from this." Yeah. And it was a very, very comforting book. So yeah, that one I will endorse. Second, you know, throw out there should have been on my list, but I'm glad Jerry brought it up because that both was something I sought for comfort, and it provided it perfectly. Yeah, no, I agree. That one could have been on mine as well. Our next one comes from R, and it's R period. McGray novels. I also want to add Richard Brodigan books, always clever and funny and nicely written. Then Louis Panini says, when it comes to comfort reading, I always find myself going back to Julio Cortazar's two volumes of collected short stories in Spanish. I think it has to do with the fact that I bought them and read them when I was 16 and rereading these has been a way for me to reawake the feeling I experienced back then. I was in awe. Up until then, I hadn't read anything that came close to the powers of his imagination. After so many years, his stories have truly turned into a soothing balm that I will always keep within reach. And then Tina Kay says, Train Dreams, because it's so small, you can read it when you're in between novels, or a few chapters of Life, a user's manual. Train <laughs> Dreams, that's another great one I could add. <laughs> It is, and it certainly. I and I responded to her and said, "Wow, I wouldn't have thought about that one just naturally because talk about a book where almost nothing good happens." I know that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. All right, so I am going to read one from Christy Cacciapaglia. I don't know if I'm saying these right. I apologize. I'm sure I didn't say that last name right. But my top comfort read would be "To the Lighthouse." My English teacher, junior year in high school, noticed that I was hungering for more books to read, and he recommended Virginia Woolf. He was the first person who noticed my love of books, and I am thankful he sent me to Woolf's books. I don't read books that often, but I also love Little Women. I always mean to reread it around Christmas. That book was a great comfort to me as a child. I even dressed up like Louisa May Alcott for Halloween one year. I am positive no one knew who I was supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I love we, that so much. Uh-huh. Uh, Katie Whitmore's uh, recommendation for Jane Gardam's Old Filth. I haven't read those that trilogy, but I have read Jane Gardam, and I 
do I love her books. I can get lost in in those as well. So I need to get to those. I do too. Uh, Kevin Shorthill uh, said, The Box of Delights by John Macefield because of the creativity of the story and the beautiful language. And he says, has anyone read his memoir, So Long to Learn? Uh, nope, I have not. I haven't either, but now that's one I'm writing down with my pen. Oh, good. You're taking our advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Kim Paulsat, I say I don't keep books, and I don't. Except <laughs> I've always had these books since the late 80s, and I can't bear to part with them. The first begins with a quote from Browning. The good stars met in your horoscope, made you of spirit and fire and dew, and is the Canadian classic Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. The second book is The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. The title makes it sound like a self-help book, and I guess in a way it is. Both books use nature as a form of comfort, which is something I internalized from them as a child, judging by the size of my flower garden. Mm. There's peace to be found in their words. And then from Francis Evangelista, I'd go with children's books. There is a real joy in reading them as an adult, especially if you love a particular title as a kiddo. In particular, she mentioned The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton uh, Juster. And here's what she said. I keep stacks in my office to give to kiddos. It is, it's my heart, as a little person I know says. And then she also said her husband would say science fiction, just as a, one of those comforting genres. Yeah, those are great. So the next one comes from Rebecca Hussey. She says, rereading a favorite book for me. The last time I did this, I reread the Deborah Levy autobiographical trilogy, which may be a weird choice, but it's true. My husband would probably reread all the Patrick O'Brien books. He's done it a few times. <laughs> I think that's another one that comes up a lot. I think people who read those read them over and over and over. <laughs> so our next one is from Edie Medav. And again, I hope I pronounced that correctly. She says, reading Robert McFarlane aloud, which you know that one makes me happy. I need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Dorian Stewart says, PG Woodhouse with an exclamation point. I picture him holding it up in a in a big stadium with a big... I know. <laughs> big uh, finger that says PG Woodhouse or something like that. <laughs> and given how many people are doing that, he would have a lot of people cheering for him if he was doing yeah. that. <laughs> so Nisi Panetta says, especially in the depths of winter, when we are dreaming of summer sailing in Maine, I take The Peninsula by Louise Dickinson Rich off the shelf. Published in 1958, this is her memoir of time she spent after the death of her husband on a remote corner of down east Maine. Rich lovingly evokes the austere landscape and the close-knit community of fishing families, whose way of life was threatened by the post-war development boom. This book is out of print, but you can find copies online for a reasonable price. An introvert after my own heart, she writes, Isolation is not estrangement from life. Across the void that separates man from man and from the wild things, it is possible to flash a light, to transmit a voice, to send a glance or a thought. Ooh, I love that one. It actually ties into one that I'm going to mention a little later. And then Nisi also says, the poet I often turn to is Charles Wright, especially his 2009 collection, Sestets. These are poems in communion with the ancient sages, with the world around us, with those we've lost. For me, anyway, they offer a portal into deep time. And her final entry would be Ross Gay's essay collection, The Book of Delights. You can just pick one at random and know you'll be reminded why we're lucky to be here. My favorite is number 80, Tomato on Board, in which he takes a small tomato plant on an airplane. I would actually, I saw him read that that exact um, <laughs> essay one time. It's, it's great. He's, he's wonderful. And then Sarah D. Gord says, Watership Down. Not an extremely comforting one, but one that I have read <laughs> so many times it is a comfort to revisit. Also, detective novels. 
they are the right balance of new and predictable. That's a good way of putting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> All right, one more little batch here, and then we'll get to some of ours. Simon Thomas. One of my favorite comfort reads is a relatively recent discovery, Oh, the Brave Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith. While this coming-of-age novel on the Yorkshire Moors features an awful lot of things that are discomforting for young Ruan, and frankly tragic, there is something in Smith's tone and sense of place that transports, enlivens, and, yes, comforts me. The other I turn to is better known, E.M. Delafield's Provincial Lady series, particularly the second in the series, Quite why I feel most at home in the diary of a 1930s housewife is for a therapist to determine. (laughs) But I reread these funny, observant, self-deprecating books over and over and never grow tired of them. (laughs) That's funny. Sharon Haskell, The Fortnight in September, an extraordinary novel about ordinary people enjoying simple pleasures. I I saw this pop up a lot on my Instagram uh, when I would, you know, which I have going on right now when I ask, what are you reading this weekend? And I want to get this one pretty soon. It does feel like that promise of a nice uh, holiday away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Daniel uh, Brennan says, Treasure Island. This is my go-to insomnia read. <laughs> I like that. Yep. Uh, Furrowed Mill- Middlebrow. D.E. Stevenson's Miss Bunkle's book. Dorothy Evelyn Smith's Miss Plum and Miss Penny. Dame Agatha's Cat Among the Pigeons. Polly Horvath's The Canning Season. Ah, you weren't expecting the last one, were you? <laughs> <laughs> well, and just to pull out D.E. Stevenson's Miss Bunkle's book, that's one I think my wife would uh, would recommend mm. on here. Uh, Catherine Eaton, Trollope and Angela Thurkle novels are mine. Their characters get agitated, but things usually work out due to the Barsetshire setting, no doubt. Mm. I did not know, and I don't think you did either, based on your response, that Angela Thurkle's novels are also set in Barsetshire. I did not um, know that. I, and now I'm definitely yeah. going to have to do some exploring. There are like a million of them, so we've got a lifetime of uh, of those of holidays to Barsetshire in front of us. I know. <laughs> I love that. If that's not comforting, I don't know what is. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our own list here, Paul. I didn't order mine in any order. I just listed them as they came. Yeah. But why don't you give us one of yours? Okay. And this is another one. I don't know if you'll consider this cheating or not, but on several of these, I didn't pick a specific book. Sometimes it's just an author. (laughs) I'm taking it that that means you probably didn't do that. All right. I did. I'm only laughing because of what you said at the beginning where (laughs) you you make show notes really fun. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So my first one is David Sedaris. Um, It really could have been any of his books. Um, Some of my favorites are Me Talk Pretty One Day, Naked, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. And then recently he's been publishing some journals, which my wife and I have both really been enjoying over the last few years. So as most people probably know, Sedaris writes humorous essays. And when he does that, he often mines anecdotes from his life, sometimes from his childhood or sometimes from his interactions with his family as they're all adults or even with life now with his husband, Hugh. Um, you know, I hardly ever laugh out loud. That's just not usually the way that I that I do. You know, I don't cry. I don't laugh out loud when I'm reading. But man, mm-hmm. he consistently cracks me up or I will just be chuckling. Um, and my, wa- my my wife is also a huge fan. I asked her about her comfort reads and he was the first person that she mentioned as well. Um, you know, when one of us is reading one of his books, they'll start laughing. And then the other one, you know, starts snooping over the shoulder. And we, we just love to share his books together. Um, I came across a line about his books that I really liked, though. And I think this is one of the reasons that I can return to them. It says, it's easy to read these essays fast and go right for the joke. But to do so is to miss a rich layer of his work. 
And I think that's exactly what keeps me coming back. Um, if this was just a bunch of punchlines, you know, a stand-up comedy routine, it might be fun to read it through one time, but then that would be it. But man, he's such a good writer and he packs in so much pathos. He covers some really rough topics as well. And yet somehow at the end, he generally makes you end up feeling okay. Um, so, you know, he gets a lot of his content from friends and family, like I said, and it sometimes creates tensions within his family that he's talked about in the past. So in one of his essays, Repeat After Me, his sister starts, you know, sharing something and he immediately reaches for his notebook and his sister grabs his hand and says, if you ever, ever repeat that story, I will never talk to you again. And he says, oh, come on. The story is really funny. And I mean, it's not like something you're going to, it's not like you're going to do something with it. So he says, your life, your privacy, your occasional sorrow. It's not like you're going to do anything with it. And so it's like, it's funny, but it has that little bit of an edge to it too. And it's like the reality. And so that's kind of the thing about him that I really appreciate is it's not just the comedy. Um, You know, I'm not going to take a bunch of time to read, but in his book, um, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, the first essay is called Us and Them. And it's talking about this family that moves into their neighborhood and they don't have a TV, which as a child, he's just, you know, flabbergasted. So I'll just read a real quick snippet just to give people an idea of his voice. Because they had no TV, the Tomkeys were forced to talk during dinner. They had no idea how puny their lives were, and so they were not ashamed that a camera would have found them uninteresting. They did not know what attractive was, or what dinner was supposed to look like, or even what some people were supposed to eat. So he just has like this little, it's like a snarky voice, but it's also very funny. Um, So, you know, there's whole passages I had underlined a bunch in here, but for the sake of time, I won't read through all of them. But if anybody ever gets a chance to um, search him up on YouTube, you can find him reading and performing his work. And that is one thing I would highly recommend. When I have listened to his audio versions of his books, I already liked him. But then when you can start reading and hearing his voice, it makes them even better. So yeah, do a quick search or, or try an audio book if you haven't heard of him and just see what you think. But yeah, those are ones for years and years now that I keep returning to. A comfort activity to, to go and listen to him read. I, I would agree with you. I think, yeah. I think he's got a lot of heart and humor, mm-hmm. of course, but the heart there too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, how about, how about you? Yeah. What's your first one? Yeah. So I put, and I'll, I'll, I put this one first just because, you know, might as well, might as well jump on the bandwagon. Um, PG Woodhouse, leave it go. to Smith. The P is silent. <laughs> so listeners, if you are writing these down, leave it to Smith is spelled P-S-M-I-T-H. And it is uh, just one of these really funny books that Woodhouse wrote, filled with humor, kind of a bunch of shenanigans that just keep on ratcheting up and up and up. And yeah, laugh out loud. I <laughs> I was laughing out loud uh, reading this. And the reason that I thought of it too as a comfort read, um, it is the book I turn to. Like my wife gives people Miss Bunkle's book. That's why I brought that up earlier. She, she gives people Miss Bunkle's book when maybe they're having a hard time or they're recovering from an illness or a surgery or something like that, she'll give them that because of how that can be comforting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do the same with leave it to Smith and even my nephew. Uh, so my son had surgery last year to fix his pectus excavatum. We kind of talked about that. I don't know too much on the podcast, but, um, and it went perfect. It went really well, but um, maybe a decade ago, my nephew had the same op. Well, the same, the same condition, only the procedure was very different. He actually had to have his whole sternum like cut out and repositioned and, you know, basically sliced him open, cut everything up and then, you know, put a big metal cage to help things. 
And I sent him leave it to Smith <laughs> mm. as he got through that time, because for him, his recovery was several months and he loved it. You know, I don't, I don't think he wanted to laugh out loud for a while. <laughs> right. sure um, so I hope that he, you know, w- was a little careful there, but I do know that he, he enjoyed it and he's also given it to other people. Uh, just one of these things that I think you can turn to and say, he's going to make me feel happy. You know, mm-hmm. this, this PG Woodhouse, he's going to make me chuckle even when I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. That's a great one. And that kind of ties into some of those, what we talked about with maybe low stakes and some, some repeated mm-hmm. patterns within a, within, a, you know, like everyone's different, but there are some things that you can kind of count on to happen. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Oh, what do you have next, Paul? Well, my next one is actually one that I did. I, I said there was a time during the pandemic where I specifically sought out comfort books and these are two books that I did read during that time. And it's May, May Sarton's journals. Hmm. Um, the two in particular that I'm going to touch on are Plant Dreaming Deep and Journal of a Solitude. So they both have some similarities, but I will just give a quick description of each one. Plant Dreaming Deep is about her experience moving into an 18th century house on 36 acres in this small New Hampshire village. And so a lot of the book is just basically her moving in starting to set things up and, and create her own little space. It just, you know, captures the, the process of fixing the house up. Um, and then Journal of a Solitude is a lot of similar grounds where both books just touch on this inner life. You know, she talks about gardening and the seasons and just daily life in New Hampshire, the books she reads, the people she meets, the ideas she has, the poems she writes. And so it's something very, um, I don't know, it's just very calming and comforting. Um, it ticks a lot of boxes for me, like writing, gardening, nature, and then solitude, which that's why Nisi's um, mention about, you know, nature and how that can provide mm-hmm. a lot of comfort definitely resonated for me. Um, so there's just a couple quick quotes I'll read. She says, gardening is one of the rewards of middle age when one is ready for an impersonal passion, a passion that demands patience, acute awareness of a world outside oneself and the power to keep on growing through all the times of drought, through the cold snows toward those moments of pure joy when all failures are forgotten and the plum tree flowers. I really like that. And then she has um, another part about solitude. And she says, this morning I woke up at four and lay awake for an hour or so in a bad state. It is raining again. I got up finally and went about the daily chores, waiting for the sense of doom to lift. And what did it was watering the house plants. Suddenly joy came back because I was fulfilling a simple need, a living one. Dusting never has this effect. And that may be why I'm such a poor housekeeper, but feeding the cats when they are hungry, giving punch clean water makes me suddenly feel happy and calm. Whatever peace I know rests in the natural world in feeling myself a part of it, even in a small way. So I just thought those gave a little good glimpse. Like there is some darkness. She deals with depression. You know, sometimes her solitude can turn into loneliness, but I like reading her thoughts on it. And it's one of those that for me, at least just makes me feel like you're not alone and it also just has a very quiet, calm voice that's centered around a lot of the things that I, that kind of get me through life as well. So if you haven't read her journals, I would highly recommend those. And I, there's actually several that I haven't read. And I know that her fiction comes highly recommended from lots of people, which I haven't read yet either. But those two journals in particular, I love. Oh, that's that's awesome. And I have heard good things about her fiction. Um and then you keep on have recommended the, the journals before to me. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be a good thing. I do understand she might be a problematic person. Right. Um, but 
I, I, I do want to read what people have found so great too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's complicated, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my next one is a children's book and not just a children's book, a, a picture book that I adore that could probably get me emotional if I talked too much about it. And I mm. don't quite know why, but it is um, A Sick Day for Amos McGee by mm. Philip Stead and then illustrated by his wife, Erin Stead. And I I just love this book. That's a It's a zookeeper. It's, Amos McGee is a zookeeper. And one day he can't go to the zoo because he's sick, right? Mm. <laughs> And so the zoo animals are missing him because he plays chess with one of them. He goes and brushes this one. You know, he's just, he's who care, he's who cares for them and they mm-hmm. care for him. And so they return the favor. They all get on the bus and go to his house to comfort him. And it's more than that. I mean, that's of course, a kind of a delightful premise, but it's the illustrations. It's the care of the, the detail with the way these creatures and Amos McGee put their feet, there's there's a bashfulness to some of them that shows that they this is a way of for them to show love when they maybe don't know how to show it other ways, but that it's true and genuine, and it's it's beautiful. It won the Caldecott uh, back when it came out, and it's just I, I love it. And this this year for Christmas, I didn't know they even wrote a, a kind of a, a follow up, but it's I think it's Amos McGee misses the bus, and my wife and kids got it for me for Christmas, and it was just so fun to get back into that world again. Mm-hmm. Um, he misses the bus, and you you learn that he's really important to get to work that day because he missed the bus because he was so excited he was taking the animals on an outing to the beach. And so he can't sleep that night and he sleeps in instead. And it's just about, again, the shenanigans and people working together to still have that moment mm. where all is right and the preparation to get to that moment. And I, I love these books. I love the heart that is in them. And I hope I did them a little bit of justice here to not just say, oh, I like these children's books, but to hopefully say a little bit why I find them just exceptionally meaningful to me, even as an adult, like this is not, this is not a book that came out when I was a kid. So it's not a nostalgia pick. It's not even a book that I think my kids get a lot. Like I read this one on my own mm. when I want to feel comfort. <laughs> yeah. I love so. that. No, I, I have one like that too. The heart and the bottle by Oliver Jeffers. I don't know if you've ever read mm. that one, but mm-hmm. I did read it when my kids were younger, but same kind of thing. Like I, they bought me a copy for my birthday. It was my copy. And I, will get choked up reading that book just on my own without the kids. So no, there I'm, I'm all with you on that one. There's something that can be very powerful in the simplest of books. For sure. Yeah. Well, why don't we do one more each and then we'll get back to our listeners uh, contributions. Perfect. Um, so the next one for me is all creatures, great and small by James Harriet. Um, this book I think has had a bit of a resurgence recently because there's been a new TV series that's come out, but, um, This was a book that was around me my whole life. My parents loved it. It was always on our shelves. They would read parts of it out loud to me. Um, Growing up, we would watch the BBC series that came out in the late 70s that ran into the 80s. Um, So these books are just so wonderful. It's a series of episodes that occur. This first book specifically occurs within the first two years of the veterinary practice of the the storyteller, James Harriet. Um, And so the, the plot is broken up into short anecdotes. Each chapter is just a short 
anecdote about something happening while he's treating animals, meeting farmers, you know, just driving around in the Yorkshire Dales. So the setting is wonderful. There's lots of beautiful nature writing. Um, but he's hilarious for one thing. He's just a very <laughs> funny writer. But then all these characters that he meets, all these crusty old farmers that live way up on this hill, you know, that he's this young vet who is kind of bluffing a little bit and doesn't exactly know everything that he's doing. And these people are not always, they're skeptical of him to say the least. And, and sometimes they're not all that kind. But again, there's that genuine goodness that runs through all these where so often there is kindness or he's able to save animals. Um, yeah, they're just wonderful. Um, there's one particular that I think is a favorite of many of the readers. There's this, he deals with a lot of poor farmers because it's during the Great Depression. But then he also has this one rich client and she has this little dog named Tricky Woo. And <laughs> he ends up coming out there for all these, the dog is overfed, it's spoiled. She feeds it all these things that it should never be eating. And and she she's so funny because she just talks about it as if it's her child. And so basically throughout, he ends up, you know, becoming pen pals with Tricky Woo. He, Tricky Woo sends him like- It's like Amos of, McGee. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so he'll be bashful and come back, like talk to his friends about it. But he's like her uncle. Um, so she, she, he's always getting these expensive gifts from Tricky Woo and going to parties for Tricky Woo and everything. So yeah, they're just, they're, they're funny. And <laughs> speaking of reading to the kids, we read this one to our kids and they just absolutely love them as well. So yeah, this is a series that's just been with me my entire life. And I absolutely go back to it when I need some comfort. Oh, that's awesome. I have not... I don't know that one very well yet. We, my wife and I did start the very first episode of the old BBC series, mm, probably mm -hmm. a decade ago. And both of us were like, we are very attracted to this story. Again, like we talked about earlier, with very low stakes right now. Yeah. Like, is this is this first episode really just about him doing a round to some very subtle and not too life-threatening um, animals, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or animal con diseases. Uh, yeah, it seems to be. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in that. That's mm -hmm. cool. Yep. So my next one is one that I have talked about on the podcast before. It was tough to decide for me whether to do this or leave it off because we'd talked about it, but I thought, no, this is a literal comfort read again. One that brought me comfort back when I first read it in 2016. At a time when I was very stressed out about some things and it was the weekend and it helped me disengage with that while I didn't need to be engaged. <laughs> you know, it was mm -hmm. doing me no good to be engaged in anything else. This did it. And it was, and then there were none by Agatha Christie. And I reread it last year in 2021 in preparation for our uh, Autumn Reads episode. And I think I may have even recommended it there. So yeah, it's a little bit of a repeat. But I could probably reread it again today, still get a ton of joy and fun from it, and be be attracted to how she does it, how how skilled she is as a writer, as a as a constructor of, of characters and plots and and predicaments. And I just I love it. And it made me kind of think, you know, we 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 love cozy crime. You know, a lot of listeners did recommend cozy crime. Mm -hmm. I thought it's so weird. I mean, another word for that is comforting crime right <laughs> you know, comfortable comforting murders <laughs> you know, like, what is it what is it about this and i know there are essays and articles about you know why does this stuff and the current true crime phenomenon you know appeal 
to people who aren't like, don't actually want to go and do any of these things. And they're kind of uh, repulsed by it. What is the draw? And so I, I don't know, but I'll just say, yep, this, this, this lovely tale of an Island holiday where everyone dies (laughs) and then there were none is so comforting to me. (laughs) That's hilarious. I love it. As I've mentioned several times, that's a big gap that I need to fill. I need to read some Agatha Christie. <clears throat> well, I, I keep maybe you're the reason I keep bringing it up, Paul. Yeah, you're <laughs> going to convince me. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I I thought you just had other things to read. I didn't know you still needed convincing. If you need a no. if you need a whole campaign against uh, you know against you and pushing for this, then I can I can launch that for sure. <laughs> right. I told you it's probably my rebellious uh, teenage self, like. We do need to work this out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to some of the listener. We'll, we'll read the rest of them. Again, there are several. So buckle mm-hmm. in. Yep. So the next one comes from Tim Walker. He says, John Mortimer's Rumpel of the Bailey stories and novels. Witty, self-deprecating, clever. Ideal bedtime reading. I don't know those. I don't either. Yeah, so, that's another one. There's a lot of exciting. research that needs to be done. Yep. Mm-hmm. JLC says, always get a nice feeling when I sit down with Bolaño's Last Evenings on Earth. Mm. Great stories written with a tremendous style. Adam P. Coulter says, so comfort reads for me fall into two categories. Books where the protagonist embarks upon a journey that finds them changed in some important way at the close of the story. My all-time favorite comfort read, Buildings Roman, that checks this box is a big, in a big way is Saul Bellows' The Adventures of Augie March. I've reread it three times in my life, and each time it inspires and motivates me. The second category is books where the prose just shines and works effortlessly to set the scene by describing the natural scenery. Narratives that bring me into the natural environment definitely provide Hmm. comfort. And my top title of this category is John Williams' Butcher's Crossing. The way Williams writes, he delivers the reader right into the harrowing West in a really timeless way. Buffalo blood, campfire, snow-filled valleys, and all. <laughs> Bonnie Renzi says, anything by Alice Monroe. And again, these last few are examples, I think, where it's not always the, the subject matter that's comforting in and of itself, because some of those books yeah. are very bleak, so I like that. Um, yeah. Keith but again, Chaff- it's, the, it's the person, it's the way that they seem to be exploring and... Cur- and you know, we talked about empathy on our last episode and, and Alice Monroe certainly helped mm. has helped me feel connected to people that I didn't know how to connect to before. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then Keith Chaffee says, The farces of Joe Keenan. When I need to be cheered up, Howard Frank Mosher's A Stranger in the Kingdom when I feel homesick for Vermont. Mm-hmm. All right, Emily Hall, E.F. Benson's Map and Lucia books heard a lot about these a couple of middle-aged ladies battling for social supremacy in interwar england pettiness and bitchiness galore (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, interpolations this is my uh, old friend kevin says david copperfield period that's all you need to say i'm with you and then uh, ryan says i suppose the book i find most comforting is the wind in the willows other books i consistently turn to for comfort would include flannery o'connor's a prayer journal though I myself am not religious. Humor writings from James Thurber, though I myself am not funny. No, sorry, sorry. I, I added that part there, Ryan. <laughs> so it says, Humor writings from James Thurber and A Farm Under a Lake by Martha Berglund. 
Uh, Coreless Books. I like that we got one from a publisher. It says, crime fiction in our case, obviously. Even if it's noir and hopeless, it makes us feel for a brief moment as if our own world makes a little sense. See, that's and, perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. Richard Chaviera. Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim works for me. Sharp, biting wit, just shy of being mean-spirited. Good writing makes me happy. <laughs> I love that. So our next one might be the only contribution from somebody who has their own action figure. Yeah. It comes yeah. from our good friend, Nancy Pearl. And she says, Georgette Heyer, especially the Grand Sylvie, Sylvester, Frederica, and Arabella. It's so ridiculous that Heyer's dismissed as a mere writer of romances. Kim McNeil says, Tova Janssen is always comforting to me, both the summer book and anything Moomin. They have been a touchstone throughout my life. Jim Reddy says, Jeeves and Wooster, short stories by P.G. Woodhouse. The whimsical satire, the silly plots, the characters and their dialogue, the vocabulary and the humor, which ranges from dry to laugh out loud funny. Uber Zench says, Vonnegut, always Vonnegut, for his humor, bleakness, but nevertheless boundless optimism and humanity. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, and Slaughterhouse-Five especially. Also, a confederacy of dunces. Maybe it's the failed academic in me, but I love (laughs) laughing out loud with Ignatius. That's another great one. And then our last one comes from our old friend, um, Ordinary World, which is Beth. And she says, my Antonia, for its warmth and elegy to childhood. And I'll round us out with uh, one from um, Stuart. We've known Stuart for a long time, always online. And I was thrilled to get his input here. He says, I don't really have any books that I return to in the typical sense of a comfort read. However, when I find myself hitting a reading slump and not knowing where to turn, I eventually go back to an earlier time in my life into the genre I read most as a teenager. Horror. But not necessarily any books from that time. I guess that's something akin to comfort. (laughs) That said, I do find myself returning for occasional dips into Clive Barker's Books of Blood, six volumes of short stories. They are all rather different, strange, visceral, and gleefully turn old horror archetypes on their head. They weren't my first Barker, but these are the ones I'm drawn back to, a case of right time, right read. And then I really like this. Another love is cookbooks. If you can have comfort food, then these perhaps are comfort reads. David Thompson's Thai Food is a wonderful volume that lingers so long on Thai culture and ingredients that the recipes don't start until around page 200. And Carlo Capalbo's Tasting Georgia, the country, not the U.S. state, is a blend of travelogue and cookbook with plenty of photography capturing a land that time forgot and and the food that has sustained it. That, I thought, was an awesome insight. I do love getting cookbooks. We get them at the library. We we buy them. I love the travelogues. I'm not a big cook. We do a lot of online um, recipes. Those, I don't read always the little, you know, you know, 30 page uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing that they write, but a good cookbook. I do love, um, I do love reading them. And my, my six-year-old is in the same boat. He sits down and, and gets, goes through the ones we get from the library. So thanks for bringing that up, Stuart. Yeah. I love that. And, and looking back through all those, I just love how there are some common themes, but like you said, it's so individual and there are different things, horror books, crime books, things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with comfort that work mm-hmm. for people. And I, I, that's what I love about this. All right. We've each got, I think two more. Yeah. What's your next one, Paul? To kick it off. So here's another one that we've talked about off and on Michael Durda. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is one where I probably could have talked about quite a few of his books. Um, 
he has such a comforting voice. And so he immediately sprung to mind for me, both the topics he covers and his writing style are just so cozy. Um, I kind of think of it like hanging out with a bookish friend who also just happens to have an encyclopedic knowledge of like all of, <laughs> all of the books ever written, basically. Um, you know, he can write about Chaucer and Proust, but then he has just as much enthusiasm and insights into, you know, dime store novels that he read when he was a kid yeah. or some Victorian romance, something like that. And I just love that about him. Um, was there something you wanted to say about him? Oh, well, no, I, I, I was going to add the one of the things I love about Michael Durda too, he's, we've got these books, but he's also like the friend that comes along every weekend, or at least used to yeah. be. The reliability of his column in the Washington Post was like, oh, it's it's that time of the week. I'm going to mm-hmm. go read Michael Durda's post that can really also add to this. Over time, you know, you, you sense a kinship and a friendship with someone who has no idea who I am. <laughs> right. But, no, it's but that it's that person there. Yeah, that's like how I feel with David Sedaris. You've read his book so much that you feel like you're his buddy. Like you said, you've never met him, but it just feels like you've known him his whole life. So yeah, several of his books could have made this list, like I said. And and I keep one of his collections, Bound to Please, on my nightstand, and I've had it there for years. And sometimes I'll just pick it up and, and read a few of his reviews. And it's just nice to have that, that just know it's there when I need it. Um, but for the purposes of today, I went with his book, Readings, Essays and Literary Entertainments. Um, and I'll just read a couple of really quick excerpts. So there's one about, it's called Childhood's End. And it touches on a little bit on what I was saying earlier, where your your kids reach that point where maybe they're starting to shed <laughs> some of the things. So I'll, I'll try to are bust you, are this you about to Are you about to get emotional? Paul? I, I, hope, I hope not. We'll see how it goes. So <laughs> it says, too many books, said my beloved spouse. Not for the first time, of course, but now she turned her baleful gaze upon piles of Dr. Seuss and Gail Gibbons and James Stevenson, five or six commander toads and magic school buses, several dozen paperbacks about shy forest creatures, dinosaurs, and outer space. You, said my gentle dove, I have given up on. You're hopeless. But our children, my children, (laughs) will not have their room overrun by old books they no longer need. Isn't it enough that I have to put up with these rodents, added my sweetest one, pointing to the gerbil and the frog. And there must be enough loose Legos around here to build an addition to this house, which we sorely need, by the way. Naturally, I expostulated, boopsie whoopsie, you're just not used to boys. They need a certain amount of clutter just to feel relaxed. Probably something to do with the X chromosome, I added with a thoughtful (laughs) scientific air. Wrong approach. Terribly wrong. That's the Y chromosome, you nitwit. I want these shelves reorganized and I want it done now. But light of my life, there are a lot of treasures here. Don't give me that. They're all treasures to you. Nobody in this household is still reading Hop on Pop or the Bernstein Bears. We're beyond primers. But I like to look at them every so often. Reminds me of those peaceful evenings. The ones we'll think back upon when we're old and gray. When when we'd read aloud to the guys about the wheels on the bus or Angus and the ducks or the tetherball that bounces all over town. I started to grow teary-eyed. The best years of our lives. And now you want to throw it all in the trash heap? Not the trash heap, barked my angel. The Goodwill, the Salvation Army, that used book place at the library you spend hours at. I looked stricken. Don't give me that look. For a moment, I thought she was going to add young man. I had never before quite realized how schoolmarmish my princess could be. You take your sons and sort these shelves. And so it goes on. And <laughs> But it's just it's so funny and so relatable and so, oh, just everything about it. I, I just love all those. So. You know, I could have read that entire essay and just kept going, but that, I thought that gave a good snippet of his, <laughs> his book. Yeah. And it's also just that whole idea of a fellow book lover. He is just unapologetically head over heels in love with books. He talks about his basement's full of boxes of books, you know, and st- stuff like that. So 
Mm-hmm. Love it. A dangerous, a dangerous friend for some of us, but uh... yeah, very, very much so. <laughs> All right, my next one is one that you brought up a little earlier, and it is Tolkien's The Hobbit, ah. uh, particularly the beginning when we are introduced to the Hobbit hole, which for someone like me seems like paradise. Mm-hmm. It's clean. It's well-kept. The larder is nicely stocked with your favorite foods and spices to make them. You've got time in the, you know, in the day to do this stuff. It's just pleasant outside. It's always the magic hour, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I mean, just this image of it. And, I love that it then leads to adventure, of course. But I read this a, um, a year or two ago to my two youngest. And I would go down to their bedroom. And these chapters are fairly long. You know, it would take mm-hmm. 45, 50 minutes to get through a chapter of The Hobbit. And I was just thrilled, especially, again, at the beginning. I think The Hobbit gets a little bit, you know, where he's got to speed through a few things toward the end that he's just kind of really quickly dropping them off but the first part he is he is allowing himself the luxury of exploring this world with us and it does bring me comfort and then wrapping it up with the 1977 Rankin Bass cartoon oh. ah, perfect just makes it Love sweeter it. The, those songs you know I could see uh, yeah that was my childhood in a nutshell was having those songs going through my head all of the time, especially when we'd out, be out hiking or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so very much a comfort read. It would be again um, if I started it today. I love that. I may have mentioned this. I had that record, that Rankin Bass record. Oh, uh-huh. so, I didn't know that. You know, I love the song that the dwarves sing while they're doing the dishes. Uh-huh. And <laughs> 15 birds and five fruit trees and all those. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because Honestly, that might be the biggest comfort book of my entire life. I love everything about it. Even in the the part you mentioned at the beginning, he says a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I love that. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, my last one is one that I read probably 10 or 15 years ago, and then I actually just picked it up and reread it this last week. And it is just, I love this book so much. It's called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. So... This book is about, it's a memoir, and the narrator is bedridden with a mysterious illness. I think it's an autoimmune illness, and she is, I mean, truly, truly bedridden. She's so weak that even turning over is a huge effort for her. So she's stuck in this in this room, and one day a friend of hers comes to visit, and she brings her this terracotta pot that has some flowers in it, and it also happens to have this little wild snail. And at first... She is not thrilled about this. You know, she has enough going on. She doesn't want this responsibility of another life. Um, she can't even get out of bed. But over the coming days, she starts to closely observe this snail. And she talks about it's so quiet. She'll sit there and she can hear it chewing on a leaf. And she can hear its little tiny teeth moving back and forth and things like that. And she'll start to watch it. And each morning when she wakes up, she'll notice where it is. And over time, she gets at this terrarium. and or she, I mean, she has somebody bring in this terrarium and... You know, there's like this little shell that it'll eat for the calcium or sometimes it'll be taking a a bath or getting a drink. And so it's just this really fascinating thing. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of the peregrine in the way that she Hmm. slowly starts to relate to this wild creature and maybe even sometimes begin to relate to it more closely than some of her human friends who come to visit. Um, And so I'll just read again a quick passage. But she says, given its tiny footprint, the snail had plenty of territory in in the terrarium to survey in minute detail finding endless nooks and crannies of interest. I, on the other hand, rarely moved beyond the familiar section of my sheets. 
Occasionally, when the snail slept, and an urgent need for change, no matter the cost, swept through me, I would slowly roll from my right side over to my left side. This simple act caused my heart to beat wildly and erratically, but the reward was a whole new vista. The other side of the room was spread out before me like a map, with countless possibilities of faraway adventures, including the most tantalizing of things, a window and a door. Nothing, of course, was in reach. I could just see into the corner of the bathroom, where I knew, if I could only look farther in, I could find a clawfoot tub. Just to think of a bath, the kind one can settle into as if it were a relaxing normal routine, caused an unfathomable longing. Across the room there was a shelf that held many books, each cover a different hue, their titles of possible interest. If only I could decipher them. But the distance was too great. There was a window I could look out, if only I could stand. And there was the door, the door to the outside world. Was this truly a door that I would someday open and walk through, as if walking out into the world were an ordinary thing to do? I would look at the door until it reminded me of all the places I could not go. Then, exhausted and empty from my audacious adventure, I'd make the slow roll back toward the kingdom of the terrarium and the tiny life it contained. So that just gives a little snippet of just the type of, it's just, I don't know what it is that's so comforting about it, but she'll spend so much time in intimate detail. She'll be sitting there just staring at this terrarium and it becomes like this forest floor, even though it's probably, you know, a couple square feet and she'll notice all the different mosses and the water and it's, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I'm probably not putting it very well, but this book, Mm -hmm. I was so happy when I rediscovered it in preparation for this episode and I can't recommend it highly enough. I don't know that it's very well known. So I don't know it. I'll say better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anybody, if that sounds appealing again, there's that common theme of, of solitude and nature that seems to run through a lot of the books that I'm recommending today. But this one in particular, despite the subject matter, it is very comforting and, and it actually makes you feel a lot of, um, I don't know. There's just a joy in it. That's hard to describe until you read it. Nice. All right, my last one is maybe somewhat similar to to an extent or does some similar things. And it is just, here's where I'm saying just an author. That's the poetry of Mary Oliver. Mm. Her poetry is very comforting to me. It's got nature, it's got childhood, it's got uncertainty and the beauty of connecting with people and yearning to connect with people that you know you have to come over some pretty insurmountable unknowability elements to it. You know, that there's something beautiful about that of, of nevertheless going through it. Um, I find her poetry very optimistic and comforting in the best sense of the word, because it also I feel is enlightening and, um, and filled with connection. And the one I'll, I'll just read one uh, that gives, I think a fun example and it's her book or her, her poem angels says, you might see an angel anytime and anywhere. Of course, you have to open your eyes to a kind of second level, but it's not really hard. The whole business of what's reality and what isn't has never been solved and probably never will be. So I don't care to be too definite about anything. I have a lot of edges called perhaps and almost nothing you can call certainty. For myself, but not for other people. Hmm. that's a place you just can't get into. Not entirely in any way, other people's heads. I'll just leave you with this. I don't care how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's enough to know that for some people they exist and that they dance. 
Perpoetry isn't always so optimistic. I think there's always a layer of that underneath, but there's another one. I think one of, maybe one of her most famous is The Moths. And, oh, okay, you're twisting my arm. Yeah, I'll yes, read it. Please, please. <laughs> there's a kind of white moth, I don't know what kind, that glimmers by mid-May in the forest, just as the pink moccasin flowers are rising. If you notice anything, it leads you to notice more and more. And anyway, I was so full of energy, I was always running around looking at this and that. If I stopped, the pain was unbearable. If I stopped and thought, maybe the world can't be saved, the pain was unbearable. That's kind of one of those that is so, in you know, the beauty of it is so overwhelming that the thought of it ever not existing is tragic. And I, you know, again, that's filled with emotion, but uh, strangely comforting in a way. So yeah. yes, the poetry of Mary Oliver. Um, she was our country's best-selling poet about a decade ago and maybe still is. I'm not sure, but I remember reading that article. So yeah, I love that. I'm so glad you mentioned some poetry because I know for a lot of people, that's a great source of comfort. And I, I've mentioned that that's an area that I need to, to expand on, but Ted Kuzer, who I've mentioned several times now, I was just looking through some of his poems yesterday and yeah, poetry can provide something that maybe other types of fiction doesn't necessarily provide. So I'm glad you mentioned her. Well, I've got that goal this year of reading a book of poetry, a book, not just like a, you know, a random collection, but one of the particular books. I'd like you to go listen to an album mm-hmm. of poetry every month this year. And I've been, been doing it so far. That's awesome. <laughs> so, and I'm excited about it. It's been fun to get back and, and really be focused on it. Yeah. Did you have any honorable mentions that we should briefly, we, we probably ought to, ought to get going, but anything that you wanted to make sure you just couldn't stand it if we didn't mention? Yeah. A lot of these will be familiar to people from me going on and on about them. And we've even mentioned some of them here, but I'll just buzz through them. Barbara Pym is always one. Mm-hmm. She's another one I went back to during the pandemic. Um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, of course. Charles Dickens. George Saunders. Again, I'm not a big person that chases humor or that necessarily gravitates towards humor. But there are certain authors like Sedaris and Saunders that I do find a lot of um, comfort from. Shumpa Lahiri, Ted Kuzer, and then a couple more, the Gorman Guest books by Mervyn Peake. Mm. You know, I think about those a lot. And those are ones I've only read once. So that might kind of split the the difference between I've read it once, but it's also sitting on that shelf waiting for me is, is a someday book. And then the last one is one that you introduced to me, Trevor, years ago. And it's Aikenfield, Aikenfeld by mm. Robert Blythe. Yeah. Um, just these snippets of, of life in an English village. Um, there's something very comforting about those, those little um, snippets as well. So those are a few that came to mind for me. Nice. Well, I just have a couple cause I've been deleting the ones that have come up elsewhere, but I, I, we, we got my Antonia earlier by mm. Willa Cather. And when that one came in, it reminded me of neighbor Rossicky, her kind of short story or, you know, maybe even close to novella that is so pleasant that I, I find it very comforting to reread that one. And then, like I said earlier, I have a feeling that getting back to Barsetshire will be comforting, a comforting thing for years to come because this week I, I didn't do it because I've got too many things I'm reading, but I just wanted to start the next book in that series, the Barchester Towers. I just wanted to continue on with the world of the warden 
and get back to some of these, um, you know, I know it doesn't follow always the exact same people, you know, in the very next stage of their lives, but I want to get back to that community. And I realized that's where I want to spend a lot of time. Um, Mm -hmm. And with the Trollops uh, kind uh, narrator, I want to, I want to get there again. So I'll probably be doing that very soon. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you on that. And that's one of the fun things about this is that's one that we both just discovered in the last few months. And it's mm-hmm. turning into one of those that surely will be a comfort read throughout our, our entire lives. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, I thought I might end with something, you know, comforting activities that we've talked about, you know, going to a bookstore. And then you said it earlier, just having books on the nightstand and that time before reading is a absolutely a comforting activity for me. It doesn't matter what I'm reading. There are comfort reads, of course, but the the very act is beneficial to me. It makes me feel better about myself, about life, about time. It makes me experience things better, I believe. And there was a time a few years ago when I was barely reading anything. It was just busy and other things, and it just swept away, you know, like in a in a, a riptide. I too much was going on, and and it was kind of not very fun. It wasn't that anything tragic or terrible was going on in my life. It just was wrapped up in other things. And I'd start a book and fail to get far into it. Uh, it was busy at work because it always is. And I just wasn't getting much time for anything else. And I remember telling my wife one night, I just need a good, fun adventure. I need to, you know, even if I'm still here in the bedroom, I need a, something that takes me away. I need something to pick me up transport me. And I don't quite remember how that played out, but it was a realization that this is important to me. I need to be doing this. And it's, you know, again, last spring, us starting this podcast, me jumping into the Enchanted April, just things that swept me up into joy. And there is comfort in finding joy, even while everything is busy and some bad things are happening. It's still there. It's still available. Um, I think sometimes we feel like we shouldn't be able to experience it at these times, but that connection with other people, the, the way that it can help me to have a better perspective, I think on, on everything. And hopefully also a wise one. You know, I think a, a, a wise perspective or a little bit wiser than I was yesterday. Um, all of that makes just the act of reading just extremely comforting, extremely valuable. And it's Saturday morning. I can't wait to to read today. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. That's a perfect way to end it. And, and I would just add, too, that with having all of these people that have weighed in today, all of our listeners out there, mm-hmm. I think there's a comfort in knowing that there are so many other people out there who feel the same way and who are willing to always share their favorite books with you and they get just as excited when you share your books with them. I mean, that's a comfort in and of itself too. Mm-hmm. So just want to thank everybody point. again. Yeah. Just such a great community and so many interesting and, and kind people out there. So Awesome. Yeah. That's a wonderful way to end this. Thank you all so much for listening today. Thank you for your input. I hope you're having a good, a good time wherever you're at and that some of this can bring you comfort too. just even just this, this act of getting together. And as Paul said, sharing this love of books and what it does for us. Thanks all for all you do. And thank you, Paul. We'll talk to you guys later. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MOOCs and the Gripes podcast. 
You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.